0: Hi, I'm Bethany Lockhart-Johnson.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Meyer.
0: And we are so excited for another episode of Math Teacher Lounge. And as you know, podcast format, you're listening now. I think one beautiful thing about the podcast format is that it gives us a little bit more time to have these rich conversations. And I promise I won't do it, but I could talk to our guests for hours, hours. Authors Allison Hintz and Tony smith have just released Mathematizing Children's Literature, sparking connections, joy, and wonder through read-alouds and discussion. And today, we get to talk to the authors. Allison, Tony. welcome. Welcome to the lounge. Thank you. We're so grateful to be here. Thank you. We're, we're so excited to have you here. And I want to say that my very first, first, was it my first math conference? I don't, maybe it was my first math conference up in Seattle, the CGI conference. And I'm all like, you know, wide-eyed and just like, can this be a place for me, this math community, re-envisioning my relationship with mathematics and thinking about myself as, as a math teacher? What? And I went to your session on Mathematizing Children's literature. And I was just so fired up. I was so wowed by your ideas, your energy, and your passion for students' thinking. And I feel like as I read this book, I felt like I was hanging out with you. Like you were just so encouraging all the way through of educators, of other folks working with young people, and really guiding us how to listen with joy and with an open curious mind.
1: Yeah, I would love to hear a bit about the 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 genesis of this book for you folks. Like uh, my my I'm coming of this from a, a secondary educator lens. I've got small kids, so that's also part of my interest here, but I love any book that seeks to any idea that seeks to merge what seems like two disparate worlds like it's often the case that we feel like well there's approaches for ela and approaches for math and they're kind of separate disciplines and these poor elementary teachers have to have to learn all of them and be experts at all of them and here you both come along and say hey what if they are the same kind of technique can you just speak to like how this came about
2: definitely tony do you want to take a try do you want me to start us off
3: I can start. We we oftentimes uh, present and talk together, and so we kind of switch yeah. back and forth. So that's just how we are. Uh, so probably about <laughs> eight or nine years ago, uh, Allison and I, our offices were next to each other's uh, on our small campus. We're both uh, professors. And um, we just happened to have a few children's books that we looked at together. And we were just thumbing through the pages. We really like children's literature. Uh, and we noticed that uh, I would stop at certain points wondering about character motive or plot or sequence of events or language use. And Allison would stop at very different points in the book and, and notice number and concepts or something about mathematics. And we that's when we started to wonder, what would it be like if we were sharing um, a children's book with a group of children and we put our ideas together? Where would we stop? What would we talk about? What would we ask children about in terms of their thinking and what they notice?
2: And so we started playing with these questions that we had and started approaching stories with multiple lenses to see what kinds of things would children notice and what kinds of things might they say. And we were also on our own journey in trying to understand how to plan for and facilitate lively discussions in classrooms that surface really complex mathematics. And it felt like stories were a place where that might be a fruitful context for hearing children's thinking. Worked with a lot of teachers and students in our region. We live in the Seattle area and we've applied for some funding over time that's really helped us be in a lot of community-based organizations and educational contexts and libraries and pediatricians' offices and classrooms, various classrooms, and see what's interesting about this and what might teachers and children do with stories that would surface complex mathematics to think about together.
3: Over time, we came to the realization that if we wanted to hear children's ideas, we had to stop bombarding them with questions. Yeah. <laughs> and at first, it made it worse that we were asking them math and literacy questions at the same time. Yeah, And so we realized that what we needed to do was to back off and to ask children what they noticed
0: and wondered. So can you say more about that and how that kind of evolved into mathematizing children's literature?
3: We did work with a number of very thoughtful, talented classroom teachers and children's librarians in public library systems who were just so masterful at asking uh, open-ended prompts um, and questions rather than kind of like the de facto reading quiz that a read aloud can become, which I have always disliked as a literacy educator. And we realized in our observing these uh, read-alouds or or interactive read-alouds or shared reading experiences that given the opportunity and the space and an adult who was actually listening, that children came up with all of the ideas we would have asked them about and more. So we didn't have to be bombarding them with questions. They were already much more thoughtful than what would have been sufficient to answer questions.
2: Much like mathematics, it was really an iterative process. You know, we had some clunky, we had some clunky read aloud discussions where we were trying to accomplish so much and um, toggling multiple chart papers and different colored pens and all sorts of. How do we capture these ideas? And do we separate them? Do we keep them together? And so, it's really been over time that, with partners, we've learned these. Ways of having multiple reads of the same story that allow us to hear what children notice and wonder um, and then to delve more deeply into their questions and their ideas through multiple reads where we might we might spotlight literary ideas that they notice we might spotlight mathematical ideas that they notice, we might make purposeful integrations between those. But we found it to be most productive, um, and Kristen Gray really helped us think about this: to have an open notice and wonder, get everything out, much like an open strategy share. We welcome, hear, record all the ideas, and it and it goes all over, everywhere. You know, it can be a really not mathy noticing, and those are amazing. So there's a lot of um, yes, there is a ladybug on this page. The grandma is wearing green triangle earrings. Oh, your grandma wears green earrings. I mean, it all comes out. Wait, have you been in my classroom? Because that's what. Exactly. Uh, And then, you know, we think of it a lot like if math teachers might use the five practices for selecting and sequencing, or if you might move from an open strategy share to a targeted share, how can we get out all the questions that children are asking? And then step back from them. Take some time to really think about what they're telling us they're curious about and plan some purposeful, intentional, subsequent discussions that can delve more deeply into their, their ideas.
1: I'd love to go into that a little bit more if that's all right. Um, I'm going to yeah. speak from someone who doesn't have an elementary background and who I, I'm going to voice some some cons- some worries that I had, some anxieties. Mm-hmm. One, one anxiety I have, like in a classroom or a curriculum, is when there's no room for student ideas, right? When it's like, oh, there's just the there's just room for the the curriculum author or the teacher here. That is a sadness. Um, but I when when I see an instructional environment like you're describing here, where there is openness to all kinds of different student ideas of different levels of formality from different kinds of cultural funds of knowledge or, or wherever I also get a little bit nervous because that's like, that increases the risk that a student might come to understand that my ideas are not good enough. Whereas in the class with, with no room for their, their ideas from their home or their language or their hobbies, Like They're not going to internalize the message that that wasn't good enough. And so I'm really curious, as you move from the open notice and wonder where kids share all of themselves with you, um, and then you you move to a targeted, a a more focus on some sort of disciplinary objective. How do you navigate that tension and help students feel like their contributions are valuable, even though we aren't taking them up per se?
2: It's such an important question. I mean, we've really, I think we've grappled with this broadly in math education. I think any time we're thinking about which ideas we choose to take up, to pursue, to consider, we have a responsibility to think carefully about whose ideas are being taken up and heard and considered. And so, one of the tensions I hear you naming, I think Dan, is when we engage in lively discussion where children's thinking is at the center. How do we make sure to upend and interrupt kind of status norms that run the risk of being deepened? Um, and I think by paying attention to whose ideas are taken up as much as which ideas are taken up, mm. um, and what are the what's the mathematics we want to explore is one is one tension. Um, another tension I might hear you naming is, you know, the the complications that teachers face with time and pressure and coverage, and which mathematics ends up getting worked on, and um, you know, it's it's something we've really had to struggle with in mathematics education, where we move to more discussion oriented classrooms that are really centered in sense making to know that. It takes a lot of time to do this thoughtful, thoughtful work. Um, does that begin to get at some of the tensions you're raising? Is there is there more you're thinking about?
1: I, I think it's really helpful that you that you kind of broaden the scope of the question beyond. Your book to this is a, this is an issue that we are you know really challenged by and focused on broadly in math education mm-hmm. and um, I appreciate you bringing the bringing the element in of like of whose idea not just which idea is taken up but whose idea is taken up is an opportunity where let's say multiple people raise an idea that is towards an objective the teacher has they have the opportunity to disrupt certain kinds of st- st- like status um, I like ideas about status in that moment. From your perspective like are there techniques to say i don't know parking lot certain kinds of questions and say like hey like these are awesome uh- uh, you know i don't know i just i know the yeah. time i see kids at like ninth grade like they they are very reticent often they've been, they've internalized totally, this yeah. sense of like i'm not going to just like share about the the pants the the grandma's wearing you know that's like i hope that will not be received well and so i'm just kind of wondering how how that happens and like what are the ways we, get, we can disrupt that um so in that process so
3: thinking about uh dim what the you know, from the teacher's perspective, in those kinds of scenarios where you want to honor each each child's contribution, uh, a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, one is that by you know initially by modeling what I as the teacher what something that I notice or wonder about um, helps kind of set the expectation for what kind of response um, would be encouraged. And it's and it's broad, but it gives an example. And then also we really try to record or to chart all of the ideas that are shared, so that we can you know, revisit mm-hmm. and honor those together. Um, and then you know, either later or on another day, if we choose one or two of those to explore in some way with a more focused read, um, then another thing that we, that we do is um, have the idea investigation afterward that um, continues that thought, but goes back to being as open-ended as possible So that, you know, those students or children who maybe didn't have their idea as the one that was focused on by the group could go back to that or explore some other idea of their own. So that the idea investigation isn't a lockstep um, extension activity, which is why we don't call it that. Um, So they could again bring in their own perspective. But I have to say, from the teacher's point of view, there is that moment of (laughs) potential panic because there is that power transfer. When you're asking children to help steer where this is going, and if you really mean it, you have to let them steer a little bit. And that can be terrifying. And um, I always think of um, one teacher, uh, Ashley, we, we worked with, who read the adorable book, Stack the Cats, uh, by Susie Girimani. And in that book, there's a point where there are eight cats and they're kind of trying to be a tower of cats, and they fall. And they're sort of in the air on that page. And she asked her first grader, she stopped, she asked, how will, how do you think, how will the cats land? And for about a minute and a half, the entire (laughs) class was silent. They had their little papers, they had chart paper, they had um, uh, clipboards, they had everything they needed. But that that uh, unusual phenomenon of a group of six and seven-year-olds actually just sitting and thinking and not being peppered with activities was really stressful but amazing and then after about the 90 seconds they started out into their exploration of how the cat the aid cats might land they just needed a minute to think and it's so rare that we're able to let children have that
2: in that same moment ashley who is a learning partner to us She turned to us kind of quietly, like, should I pose a different question? And (laughs) we're like, no, let's stick with (laughs) it, let's see what happens. So I think it creates this space too, this thinking culture, right? And and this culture of what does that mean to really pose a rich task that's open-ended where there's multiple access points? Those eight cats could land in so many different ways. And there was broad access. There was a wide range of all the cats landing in ones on their feet because cats always land, land on, on their, their feet. feet. <laughs> <laughs> and there was there was every combination. And so um, I think what's what's really interesting, and to me this brings back to your wonder, Dan, is you know what's the risk in openness? And there's always risk in openness. Um, it's scary as a teacher, right? If I'm not the authority of knowledge and I don't have a control over where we're going to go. It might get into places that I didn't anticipate, or I don't really feel as solid in the math I want to, um, or I don't know what it sounds like to stick with silence and wait time um, to know if my students are really in productive struggle, or if that question was a flop. And so um, I think this is some practice space for young mathematicians and teachers of mathematics and just teachers to explore with that openness and kind of the risk of the openness required for complex thinking to emerge.
0: You know, it feels like you, the way you're both describing this, it really is a culture shift, right? I kept feeling like I was given permission to be a beginner as I read this book. Like I was really, I I was, I loved how you said, I, I believe it was you, Allison, when you were in the class, you had a couple index cards that you kept on your clipboard and that as you walked around, you would like, hey, if I don't know what to ask, I ask one of these questions, you know? And just this idea that, that like Dan was saying, there is that loss of control, but that's also a way to create this culture where students' ideas are valued and we are allowing students to really generate the questions, which I thought was such an important idea to explore. We
2: started this work long ago super excited about mathy books. And we saw a lot of potential in them and we still do, but the limitation we saw is that mathy books they they put forth a certain mathematics to be curious about, in some ways they tell you what mathematics to think about. So we started asking ourselves what would happen if we considered any story a chance to engage as mathematical sense makers. And we started playing with non mathy books. And we got to a place where we could consider every story an opportunity to engage in mathematical thinking. And so we started noticing things over time. Oh, these books tend to be really mathy. We call those text-dependent. We'd have to pay attention to the mathematics to understand the story. Whereas this pile of stories, these, um, they're not overtly math. You could really enjoy the story and not pay attention to mathematics and have an amazing conversation. But what would happen if we thought about this story as mathematical sense makers and how might it deepen our understanding of the story? And then this other teetering pile of books, these are books where, um, you know, children didn't tend to engage... as as overtly as mathematicians in it, but there's opportunities in the story to go back to something, to a moment, to an illustration, to a comment, and think as mathematicians. And those were more about illustration exploring. And so as we notice these different kinds of books, we really broaden what we thought about. And I think one of the things we really want to think about in community through this book is what happens if we approach any story every story as mathematical sense makers because stories are alive and children's lives in homes and communities and in yes, schools. Yes. And um, it's a broad opportunity that we want to, we want to take up. I was thinking uh, and as I stay in this train for just a moment about book selection sure. before we move into that process. Um, Bethany, in a previous MTL, you talked about representation.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. and
2: do you remember when you, shared the image of hair braiding?
0: Yes. Vividly. Yes.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And can can you say just what that meant to you with that?
0: Yeah. Well, it was, it was from a conference Sunil Singh had, had used it and was talking about the artistry and math, mathematics and beauty in hair braiding. And, um, particularly uh, he was showing this particular image of this black woman with her hair braided in profile and looking at the angles and the symmetry. And Mm -hmm. it, I shared that, you know, I spent so many hours in the beauty shop with my aunties and my mom and my grandma Mm -hmm. and continue to, to this day, that it just, it struck me immediately as familiar and it struck me immediately as as seeing an image that was reflective of my re- lived reality projected as valuable and worthwhile for consideration in the world of mathematics which is not what i felt as a student of mathematics as a as a young young adult or child so it was this beautiful moment of the for me the power of when we see images and we allow opportunities for reenvisioning what may be a common practice for that student or maybe something that they see every day. And
2: in that in that same way, that image that was put up, we want to think really carefully about representation in the stories that we select. And when we think of stories as mirrors or windows, we really want to be mindful in story selection of whose stories are told and whose stories are heard. And when you said that you would sit down to listen to a story and you felt at ease or that you saw an image and you saw yourself, that can that can be and should be something we really think carefully about when we select the stories that we select.
1: It's a, a wider path for representation of different kinds of people in literature, because people's stories seem so much more present and towards the surface of their lives versus, say, the abstractions and numbers and shapes and mathematics. It feels like more of a struggle to find ways to show people, hey, like you're here, this this place belongs to you. So in all these reasons, yeah. I think it's really great you folks are using literature, which has this history of human- mm-hmm. humanities, li- literally humanities All as culture, a vehicle
2: yeah.
3: for,
1: for mathematics. It's a, that seems pretty special here.
3: We both go to libraries and bookstores and, and look through books as often as we can, but also um, our partner, uh, children's librarian, Mei Mei Wu, uh, helped us go through. She, when we would meet, she would bring three or four hundred books at a time
0: when you uh, described her wheeling in the cart, oh, <laughs> no, I wish I'd yeah. been in that room.
3: <laughs> and she, the cart was, you know, probably three or four times bigger than she was. Some sometimes, and we would we would go through hundreds of books and look at them and listen to her thoughts as a skilled mm-hmm. librarian sharing with families, diverse families, and what catches, you know, the attention of a three-year-old sitting with her grandfather and. And that was really a, a valuable, helpful experience, and it's a partnership that that continues. So the last stop on Market Street, and this is this is in the book. We talk about this this children's book quite a bit, um, but in this in this story, uh, CJ with his grand with Nana, his grandmother, are riding the bus to the last stop on Market Street in San Francisco uh, to go, as we will find out, to go and to help serve in a soup kitchen to help the community, and um, it's. We, the teacher, Susan Hadrias, had um, the children record their ideas. She charted them in an open notice and wonder read. And one of the ideas that a a young boy noticed was that CJ on the bus, uh, a man with a guitar starts playing the, the guitar on the bus. And CJ closes his eyes. And it says, CJ's chest grew full and he was lost in the sound. And the sound gave him the feeling of magic. So this boy said, I wonder, what does that feel like? If you're feeling the magic, what's that? And that was one of many ideas in the Open Notice and Wonder. And Allison will talk about the math lens read. But first, Susan went back and read with them. She had that idea. She circled it on the chart paper. And another day that week, she said, let's go back and visit this story we really liked. And remember, we wondered what feeling the magic was like. Let's go back through and let's keep track of all the feelings and emotions that CJ had across the journey to the soup kitchen in this book. And so they did another read of the story. They were very familiar with it, of course, but they noticed new things. And they also, every few pages, stopped and she helped chart all of the emotions that CJ experienced from envy to excitement to sadness. There's a huge range in this book, and it was fascinating.
2: I think one of the things that the children noticed was that CJ's feelings were shaped by community and that he was, he shaped and shaped, he was shaped by and helped shape his community. And so the ways that he felt across the story were impacted by the other characters that he comes across the guitar man on the bus, the bus driver who can pull a coin out from behind someone's ear, um, his the lady with the butterflies in the jar nana helping him to see the rainbow and the students started you know being curious about that how do we shape and how are we shaped by community what communities are we a part of this class is one community i'm in many communities across my life and they started to quantify the number of people in the story so mrs hydrias went back for a math lens read And she said, let's just keep track of and pay attention to how many people are in CJ's life in this day, because I can hear you starting to think about quantity. This class at the same time in other areas of the day had been working on counting collections, how to keep track. So they got out their tools. Some people pulled out 10 frames. Some people pulled out clipboards. They had a wide range of things they could use to help them keep track. They developed their own strategy, keep track however you want. She did a quicker read through it. Flipping the pages, and then they get into these debates. (laughs) We already counted that person, but they took their hat off and put it down to collect money. What about Uh, the dog? Person, yeah, does a dog dog count in his community? Do animals count in our (laughs) community? Yes, they count. Uh, And so we went through and quantified, and there was really this understanding as you saw these people throughout the story that. Um. Communities can be of different sizes, but community has impact and you have responsibility in your community to show up and to lean in and to um, know that bringing your full authentic vulnerable self, you shape people and they shape you and what communities are people a part of. And it turned into this really interesting discussion about quantity and helped us think more about quantity and community. I think a really important moment for us and for that class was the transition from being people who almost did mathematics to a story, like counted things on a page, um, count acorns on a page in an autumn book, to being mathematicians who thought within the story.
3: And then uh, two idea investigations that came from that, not at the same time, of course, but with the same group of, of children. One was um, they identified an emotion of their own and wrote and drew about that. And also um, who helped them, you know, address or get out of or um, acknowledge that emotion. And then the other idea investigation was that all of the children drew um, or kind of mapped out um, a community that they were part of, whether it was their neighborhood or their classroom or their soccer team or whatever it was. And so it then it, the, those uh, investigations strengthened the connections of those concepts to the lives of those children.
0: Well, I I actually wanted to ask you about idea investigations because I feel like that was such an that was such an important invitation in your book and the way I understood the idea investigation is you're really paying attention to what's coming up in your other reads, right? And then these are opportunities to extend the thinking or like you said, to extend a particular aspect. What's your community? Can we map your community or what's a particular emotion? And it was in such contrast to what I think I have probably done in my classroom more than once, which was like, oh, we read this story about seals, so now my story problem is going to be about seals, right? Like in the story, <laughs> totally. you know, Jojo the seal had five balls. So if Jojo still had five balls and two of them bounced away, you know, or whatever, right? But that's not what an idea investigation is, right?
2: Yeah, I think this is where we also had some stumbles and can totally relate to what you're saying as previous classroom teachers as well. Um, we have come to a place where we, we are pretty in favor of a super open-ended idea investigation that takes up the things that have surfaced in the multiple reads and making sure it's a rich task with many, many ways children can engage with that. There's many, many, many right answers or ways to engage. Less is more there. So, so we moved way away from like even a worksheet that might have an idea from it, to blank paper and math tools and places to get into some productive struggle around some of the complex things that were raised.
3: A challenge with worksheets um, is that they put a frame around children's ideas. Um, So either there are only three lines to write on or there's only a small box to draw in Um, whereas a blank page is really, it opens up the possibility. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I was, is it Ann Jonas who wrote Splash? I don't have it in front of me. The book Splash about animals that end up in and out of the pond, including a cat that was not happy about ending up in the pond. And an idea investigation after that for young, very young children was with the list of the different creatures uh, displayed uh, at the front of the room on blank paper Hey, draw your own pond and decide how many of which and, and each type of animal you want in your pond, and then write about it just on blank paper. And so that allowed some children to draw like three giant goldfish, but other children drew 17 frogs and three cats, and, and just it, it lets children follow. But it was
0: theirs, right? It was their theirs. idea.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and that comes partly from, I think, as Allison mentioned, we both were classroom teachers before moving into academia. And I, I remember giving children worksheets, particularly math worksheets, where they weren't necessarily bad. But at, right at the bottom, it says, like, explain your strategy. And it gives two lines. Right. <laughs>
1: the,
3: only, the only thing a seven-year-old can write there is, I thought or I solved it. And that's not where we we need
1: to go. Yeah, if I could just have, I kind of just ask the indulgence of the the primary crowd here. Like I'm trying to make sense of all this and I just want to like offer my perspective, my summary statement of what's going on here. I'm trying to, I love how you both came here. How are you doing, Dan? How are you
0: doing? I'm
1: A, I'm A, loving this a lot. Um, B, I I came in here loving how you folks are broadening the work of, of primary education to kind of find commonalities between these sometimes seemingly disparate kinds of teaching in ELA and math. I love that. I want to say what I think you folks are describing with all these teachers you observed and your own work is the work of attaching meaning to what students might not realize yet has meaning, or they might think it only has one kind of meaning, but you, the teacher with their knowledge realizes that there are many more dimensions of meaning that can be attached to those thoughts and i'm I'm hearing that from you folks when you describe a what math is and the power of a teacher to name a thing as mathematical like oh, you didn't think math was that, but math math is noticing math is wondering math is asking questions for one, um but also this work you're describing of of how like first the, the, the task has to invite lots of student thoughts and then to say like, Oh, I see that there's a, a similarity between these two and to raise those up for a conversation or to ask a question like to extend one person's uh, students question a little bit more, but it's always, I'm just hearing you folks attaching more meaning than the student might have originally thought. I I appreciate the conversation. That's really interesting.
0: Well, and now that the book is out, it's, I think it's going to keep evolving, right? Now that it's going to be in the hands of teachers and librarians and educators and caregivers, it's exciting to see kind of where it goes next, which actually brings us to our Mm -hmm. MTL challenge. Dan Meyer, do you want to share?
1: Matthew Lounge, we have a a challenge for uh, the folks who listen, and we'd love for them to hop into the the Facebook group, Matthew Lounge, or hit us up on Twitter at MTL Show. And just to kind of exercise beyond listening, exercise the ideas you folks are talking about, some kind of a a challenge that can help us dive deeper into your ideas. So what would you folks suggest uh, for our crowd, for our listeners?
2: I would love to invite people to playfully experiment with a favorite story, with a story that's new to you. I would love to invite listeners to sit with a story, maybe on your own, and just ask yourself as a mathematician, what do you notice and wonder in this story? Don't feel any pressure. Um, Maybe sit with a child or some children and listen to what they notice and wonder. Like, really listen. Don't ask questions, but hear their questions. And place children at the center and consider multiple reads consider continuing to pursue their questions. And we have a we have an a planning template that might support people in kind of sketching out some ideas if you're open to playing with that too.
0: And we will post awesome. a link for that planning template in our Facebook group and on Twitter as well. So thank you so much for that resource because I think it'll definitely help uh, it could help you. Like you said it could help you kind of organize your thoughts or help you think about this work in a new way. So thank you for that resource. And thank you for the amazing resource that is Mathematizing Children's Literature. I am so excited to continue to engage with you both and with listeners as they dive into this book. If folks want to engage with you more, where can they find you? How can they reach you? Well, we're on Twitter, great. We're and our-
1: <laughs> what's what's your address? What's your home address, Here, yeah. Wait, let me try
0: that again. If, yeah. if folks, let me try that. No, let me try that again because it does sound like I'm like. Where can they find you? Four two five That's the bookstore, y'all. If folks want to, if folks want to continue this conversation or in or share these ideas or the math challenge, how can they tag you? How can they they reach you on the, the World Wide Web besides the Math Teacher Lounge Facebook group?
3: Yeah, well, we are both on Twitter, uh, and we've been trying to promote the hashtag Mathematizing Children's Literature. It's very long, but once you type it once, your phone or computer... A, yeah,
0: those could and then, be, right? Is that what it is,
3: <laughs> The other is that we do, um, for our project, we have an Instagram account that is Mathematize children's literature?
2: We care really deeply about hearing from people. You know, we we think our ideas are constantly evolving and that there's such exciting room to grow. And we just felt compared to share what we were learning now so that together we could learn and build vibrant experiences for young children and teachers and families through stories. So we want to hear from people. We want to learn about um, stories that are important in your lives and what children say and grow these ideas together
0: and credit to dan you did you told me you went and ordered a bunch of the books they have on the suggested read list oh my right? gosh you read them to i your got
1: son. a side eye from my significant others around here for <laughs> <laughs> what i dropped on amazon in one night uh all these books i didn't have some of them i did we're not fully illiterate around here. We do love the written word at the Meyer household, but there were a bunch <laughs> that I that I grabbed. I'm, I'm morseling them out day by day.
0: Wait, at bedtime, I read my one year old one is a snail, Ted is a crab. <laughs> and let me tell you, he don't had know. vigorous pointing and da, 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 da. da, da.
2: So, oh, hey, we're on the, start, we're on the road.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Deeply grateful, not only for your work and your um your your beautiful book and your work but also for the invitation to dive into the world of children's literature in a way that many of us have not before and it's fun thank you tony and thank you allison and thanks for hanging out in the lounge thanks thank for so having much, the Dave lounge
2: Stephanie.
3: it's been fun
2: thank you <laughs> both thank
0: you.